right, we come now to this morning's message, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 5, where we read just a moment ago. And as we look at it, you will notice that our title or theme is The Urgent Need for Christian Discipleship. Well, it's not quite worded that way in the text. It is clearly what it's picturing. There should be growth in the life of believers. We uh, return to find something interesting today. Really, we have already started a new section in this text. We've talked about what we've looked at over the past year, a message that Christ is greater than the mediators of the Old Covenant, better than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than Joshua, greater, 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 greater. Jesus is greater. Now that seems obvious if we're in Christ. But as you see, there's some Jewish Christians here who are living as if it isn't true. We can go back to Moses. We can go back to the Old Covenant. We can go back there and find safety, find safe harbor. So again, he's been answering all these things. Jesus is greater. Now we've seen in this chapter that it's pointing toward his priesthood. Here's why you can't trade Christ for any other person, any other economy, any other covenant. You have to stick with Christ. He is the only one, the only sufficient Savior. And as much as we point to the atonement, and it is essential, this author points to his priesthood over and over again as the thing most people are missing. The essence, the essential nature of his priesthood, that it is not secondary, it is of primary importance. That we cannot be saved without this faithful, perfect high priest. And so he wants to talk about it. And he goes through this chapter pointing to some things, doesn't he? Well, we just read them a moment ago. Uh, High priest, uh, scriptures say, must be appointed. He can't appoint himself. That's called simony, isn't it? We have a word for that where you you pay to receive an office. Uh, That doesn't work. Uh, Clearly, you must be appointed a high priest, he says. That is the way it must work. Well, was Christ? Yes. He didn't appoint himself, but his father appointed him. He is the one who said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he makes it clear there are other qualifications. He must be of among the people that he represents. He is a man. He became a man. He came into the world in the incarnation and he became a man. He lived amongst us, tested and tried, tempted as we all are, yet without sin. So he understands us. He's able to mediate it on our behalf because he knows our weaknesses that we face in life. And so that's why the author can say he's been perfected. Now that's strange language for the second person of the Trinity, but he's not need, he needed, did not need any perfection in his nature. What he needed was perfection in this mission. He needed to be made complete for this role as a perfect high priest. And to do that, he had to become a man, and he had to put himself under the law, and he had to obey perfectly, and he had to be tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. And in this way, he's become the author of eternal salvation. Now, that's what we looked at last week. But this author comes back to an important point. As we've just started this new section on priesthood, he's going to interrupt it. And he's going to interrupt it for more than a chapter. All of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5 is an interruption, a, a parenthetical statement, a digression, if you will, in which he's going to give a warning, a challenge, and some exhortations, and also some blessed promises. We focus on the the warnings, and there is as serious and stern a warning in chapter 6 as is to be found anywhere in Scripture. But there are also some blessed words said 
particularly toward the end of that chapter for those in Christ. And as we use the kind of principles we've been looking at along the way, I think we'll understand six, which many people have trouble with. I don't think it's hard if you just keep in context all that's been said. We're going to try to approach it that way. We'll be coming back to it after uh, Easter. But again, it's important to keep it all straight. And what he's saying here, if you walk away cursings, if you stay amongst us and show that you are faithful to Christ, meaning that you are among His people, then there are blessings. And we need to recognize that. So, again, he comes to this digression, but it's brought on by what he's talking about. How? He says, He called him, God, his father, called him a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What we looked at last week, and now we go into the verse for today, which is a transitional verse, of whom we have much to say. What does he mean? There's much to say about Melchizedek, which points to Christ. Melchizedek is almost used allegorically in this sense to point to the glories of Christ. He says there's much we want to say about this order and this priesthood and what it points to in Christ. There's much we want to say about it, but we can't. I can't say it to you. Now, he is going to say it beginning in chapter 7, but he says I can't say it to you yet because your ears aren't perked up. You're not paying attention. In fact, he puts it right here. You've become dull of hearing. So we want to look at this today as we think about this text. Having read the the longer portion, let's just read these two verses again. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. As we think about this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, a warning about spiritual hearing loss. Second, a warning about stunted spiritual growth. And lastly, a call to serious spiritual maturity. I think all these are right there in these two verses. So beginning with this idea of a warning about spiritual hearing loss, we see that immediately. We begin this new section and we notice that there is a a phrase that's going to lead us into this next section that's Based on what he's been talking about, Christ did not appoint himself, but he was appointed by God, a priest, after not the Levitical order, but this other order, this mysterious order, pops up twice in the Old Testament. Genesis, in that encounter with Abraham, Melchizedek enters the scene, and Psalm 110, where this is taken from, where he declares, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, these are... um, Not a lot said. I mean, if you go back to both those sections, there's not a lot there. But this author is going to talk extended here about Melchizedek and his priesthood and how it points to Christ. So he's got a lot to say, but I can't say it. I can't say it. You're not ready to hear it because you become dull of hearing. It's important. It's not that you're not innately able to hear. He's not talking about your physical hearing or your mental ability to process. He says this is something that has changed, something that you've become. What you once did, you no longer do. You once heard and listened and processed and believed, and now you've become dull of hearing. Lazy, dull of hearing. Notros, slow to understand, lazy in your hearing. What you once heard with eagerness and listened and thought about now You just pass right on through. No thought about it. Lazy in your approach toward it. You're not listening. You've become slow to hear. Dull in your hearing. And so, before we would think that this is no big deal, 
before we think that it's not that urgent that we listen eagerly, that we really think about the Word of God and, and hear the Word of God and heed the Word of God, remember this is the transition into the one, of, one of the most stern warnings in the entirety of Scripture. This is how he gets there. It's by saying, listen, first you're dull of hearing. And now I'm going to walk into this extended warning. It begins with this warning. You have become dull of hearing, an observation which is no small deal. Because we have to recognize the root of it. The word being proclaimed that they've become dull to hearing is the word of God. And this author, this letter has told us that word is actually the word of Christ. It is Christ's word and His command. God has spoken in times past to our fathers by the prophets, but He's spoken to us now in these last days by His Son. The word you're rejecting is the word that's given under the authority of Christ. The word that you are growing lazy to, not heeding, not hearing. Let us not forget it's in the beginning of the second chapter that He tells them you need to heed more earnestly the things you've already heard. There are things you've heard that you're not heeding, you're not holding on to, you're not utilizing, processing, believing, living out. You're not doing any of these things. You're not heeding what you've already been taught. You need to listen. You need to think about it. You need to hear the Word. You need to believe the Word and live out the Word as Christians. And so again, if we're dismissive of this Word, we're dismissive of Christ. That's just logic. If I dismiss anything that's said... On some level, I'm dismissing the person who said it. On some level, I'm saying, well, I don't agree with you. I don't believe you. But we don't have that right when it comes to Christ. He is Lord and Master. This letter has been establishing this without question. We're not a rival authority to Christ. There is no real rival authority to Christ. He rules and reigns. He is Lord. It is His Word. We are to receive it by faith. If we do not, then we are rejecting it in rebellion. To grow lazy, to grow slow to hear it, to not listen to the Word of God is rebellion. And again, you can't miss the construction of the letter which says what? We're giving you a parallel warning to the people in the days of the Exodus who claimed to be amongst the people of God, but their testimony was disproven by what? Their rebellion. Well, what was their rebellion? They didn't believe God. They didn't trust Him. He says over and over, you rebel against me. You do not believe me. You do not trust in me. You do not do the things that I've said. I tell you I'm leading you to a better land, a better promise, a better hope. You say, send us back to Egypt. Wasn't it better there? Again and again, God says, I will give you this land. It is yours for the taking. We can't take it. God's wrong on this. We cannot take it. Again, we need to recognize the the theme throughout this letter of hearing, heeding, and faith versus rejection and rebellion, which we find, I think, as as two themes that run throughout this letter. So again, to be dismissive of this word is to be dismissive of Christ. And there's a great warning here because it means that we can dismiss the word of God not just by openly rejecting it. People do that. We have people that say, oh, I don't believe that. Uh, God's Word says X, Y, or Z, but I don't believe that. People do that. Preachers do that, right? You can go a step further and say, well, but it's just not culturally relevant today. God made that command, and He doesn't mean it anymore. It's not something we're to hold to. Uh, That's often used for homosexuality. Well, that was about temple prostitution. 
back in the days of Israel, it doesn't mean a loving, committed relationship. Try again. Right? Paul makes it clear that he reemphasizes this in the New Testament. And we could go on and on about examples like this of people who are pledging, they're saying that they are uh, followers of Christ, but they're rejecting His Word. And again, this is a warning to us. It's easy to see those examples. But there are other ways that we can just grow dull of hearing. We cannot be taking the steps of advancement that we need to. We can be uh, negligent with our handling of the Word and with our hearing of the Word. And this tells us it's dangerous. Now, again, it can simply be spiritual backwardness, if you will. We could just be not advancing as we should. But that is a bad answer, isn't it? Like, that isn't the good answer, right? The, the, the answer that, well, I'm not unregenerate or, or hard-hearted. I'm not outside of faith, which is what this author is warning it could be a symbol of or a picture of. You could say, well, it's not that. I'm just not advancing in my faith. I'm not growing in my faith. I'm, not, I'm being negligent with all the commands and word of God. That's not a good answer either. Right? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, this last Wednesday night in Pilgrim's Progress, right, with Mr. Byens, and he can't stand the trial of men. How will he stand trial by fire before God? Well, this is the question. Do you think, if preachers are warning you about this, that it's going to be good before, to stand before God and answer for being uh, negligent with the Word of God and not hearing it or heeding it? So if that's the better answer, that's still a poor answer. But the worst answer that's given here is it might be a picture of the fact that you are outside of the people of God, that you might have a rebellious and unregenerate heart. That's what it was in the wilderness. It wasn't just they were not discipled enough yet. They had not grown enough yet. He said, they've never believed me. They never promised, they never believed my promises, and they will die in the wilderness outside the promise. A picture of the warning given to us here. So again, We need to recognize the call here to be a people who hear the Word of God, trust the Word of God, heed the Word of God, grow in the Word of God. We should embrace the Word of God, love the Word of God, love His revelation. Now, that's not to say we're saved by obedience. We always have to park here because we never know what a person hears. We're not saved by obedience. But I think the thing Jesus says over and over again is obedience flows out of our being in abidance with Him, right? We abide in Him, and therefore, out of that comes forth fruits of obedience. And so we recognize the importance of what's said here. For those who are truly in the faith, obedience is a call, right? It's a call. It's not optional. It's a call. And in fact, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made a new creature in Christ should bring forth obedience. We should be a new people. Uh, That's clear. That's what the Bible says. And so again, the author's already told These hearers, these very things, give the more earnest heed to the things that you've heard, that you've been taught. And that's going to lead us straight into our second point, a warning about spiritual growth. You know, uh, stunted spiritual growth, in fact. Um, They haven't done this. They haven't heeded the word they've been taught. They They haven't heard it. They haven't listened to it. They haven't grown by it. They haven't brought forth the fruit that would be expected of it. They've become dull of hearing. That's what this author says. They haven't heard what they've already been taught. And it's ended in their stunting in their spiritual growth. Now look at verse 12 and you'll see this. Because he says, for by this time, by this time, that's kind of a marking phrase, isn't it? By now, after so long a time, you wouldn't say this after two weeks, right? Most scholars think this is like three to five years. He's saying by now, after so long a time that you've been in the way, 
that you've been in the church, that you've been under preachers and teachers, that you have been learning for this many, t- this many years, for by this time, what? You ought to have grown. You ought to have grown. There ought to be some evidence that you're making gains, that you are growing in your faith. Again, we go back to the same things we said in point one. If you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been poured out, shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are a new creation in Christ, if you are a new creature, then there should be evidence of that new life in you. Right? This is the, the thing that we try to say. We're not saved by works, but we recognize that a people regenerated by the Holy Spirit will have works. That is what the Bible is pointing to over and over again. It doesn't take it as optional, but evidential. It shows that you have been renewed, reborn, uh, made a new creature in Christ. And so again, if all this is true, then we should recognize that any living person or organism grows. Right? We ought to be growing. And I think it's the, the standard principle, if you will, in Scripture, that it's to be expected that we would be growing. And we're not growing to selfish ends. We're not growing for our own good, although I think many times we think of it this way. We're not looking for what God accomplishes in us for us, although He certainly is accomplishing something for us, in us, by conforming us to the image of Christ. But our growth in knowledge and grace is not for our own ends. It's to bless those around us in the community and people of God. We can see clear examples of this in Scripture. We could go to too many to mention, but our gifting that we are given whether it's to teach, whether it's to exhort, whatever giftings were given, Paul says it's not for your good. The Corinthians had this backwards, didn't they? They looked at their gifting and they said, look at how God has exalted me and my gift. Paul said, you've got it backwards. Your gift is not given for your good. What does he say? That gifts are given to each for the benefit of all. That's a pretty simple but important principle. Whatever gifting... God has given to you or to me or to any one of us, it's not for our own exaltation, but it's for Christ's exaltation and for the development of His people. A teacher is not given a gift as a teacher so people will go, oh man, I love that man. But it's given to him that he might exhort and teach the people of God. If you have the gift of exhortation, it's not given to you so people go, what a great Christian that man is, but it's given to you so that you can exhort people in their time of need. Encourage them in their time of need. And my friends, we all come to times where we need encouragement. And so again, these gifts are not given for our own exaltation, but to exalt Christ and to lift up His people. That's the point of them. So again, he doesn't say this. By now, you should have become scholars. He doesn't say that, does he? But that's where we sometimes think we should become scholars. We should become very knowledgeable in the Lord, that we might exalt ourselves. That's what a scholar ultimately does, ultimately points to how much he knows. But that isn't the framing of this. By now, he says, you ought to have grown to be teachers. Notice the other orientation of this. Not me gaining more, me gaining more, me gaining more. But if I'm gaining more, it's to give to others. It's to help others, to develop others, to teach others. To train others. That is the point. Paul makes the point in Ephesians that the entire point of the ministry is to do what? To train and establish those in the church that they might do the work of ministry. We see this here. By now, after three to five years, most scholars think, 
you ought to be teachers. Not one of you, not two of you, not five of you. All of you, he says, ought to be teachers. Now, my friends, we need to wrestle with that for just a second. Because we act like it should just be a a limited few who teach. But that isn't what this says. All believers, after a short time and instruction and a walk of faith, ought to be able to teach someone. Now notice this is not talking about a teaching ministry office in the church. This might be as a mother teaching her children, a grandmother teaching her grandchildren, a co-worker answering a question of of a co-worker. It may be some area in the church where you teach a Sunday school class or something. But all believers should grow within a short time. Three to five years is not a long time. Many people are in the church for 50 years. I think Spurgeon said, I've known men who've been in the church for 30 years and could not teach a a single point of doctrine. A single point of doctrine. My friends, there's a problem if we've been in church for 30 years and we can't teach anything. I'm not saying that. This text is saying that. By now, this is not, again, specified to one or two or a few. It's specified to all of them. By now, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be able to instruct someone, maybe a babe in the faith. But you ought to be able to do it. If they come to you and ask a question, you should be able to give an answer. By the way, when Peter says, be prepared to give a a defense, an answer, an apologia, when someone comes to you to ask about the hope that's within you, he's not speaking to pastors. He's speaking to Christians. Why do you have hope? We just talked about, we've seen a number of our dear friends go to be with the Lord recently. If you all are faring no better than than the rest of the world and people dying, why continue to go to church? Because, my friends, we have a hope, and hopefully they notice that, that the world doesn't offer. We don't see death as the end. Death is as the loss of something, maybe to us personally and losing someone we love dearly temporarily. But we as Christians celebrate the fact that we realize they entered into glory, which we look forward to entering one day. We look forward to. I've been talking about, and we'll have this book out one month, uh, Thomas Brooks, uh, The Christian's Last Day, His Greatest. And that's what he talks about. Death as a Christian, we recognize it's just a doorman that opens a door and ushers us into glory. And if we could really think of it that way, we would recognize what uh, we are called to think about death and to realize that it is something that does ultimately lead us uh, to those promises that God has made for us, that uh, we go to be with Him, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But, But recognize just for a moment that when somebody asks us questions like that, how can you have hope? Peter says you ought to have an answer. So many times we go, let me go ask my pastor. Let me go ask my, an elder. Let me go ask a, a deacon. The answer is you ought to be prepared right there. Peter doesn't say with a short time of study. He says be prepared to give an answer on the spot. Why do we have hope in the face of death? Well, here's why. Let me tell you about Jesus. If we cannot do that, then we have to realize this text says we've gone wrong somewhere. And I'll tell you now, the fault might be with the church. Maybe we haven't prepared adequately, prepared our people adequately, haven't had proper discipleship and and that sort of thing. But this text is saying it might also be your fault that you have not 
contemplated, thought enough, read earnestly enough, listened in church enough. We spend time going through the Bible very slowly because we believe its truths are essential to us and that we need to hear of them. And this is one we could skip right over and not think about and not talk about the fact that everybody in this room ought to be able to say, I'll help teach that class. I'll help in some ministry somewhere because I've been in church 15, 20, 30, 40 years. If after three to five years they're expected to teach, my friends, we need to recognize this is a time for us to take inventory. Where are we at? Where are we at? So here's the answer. This charge is levied. They should have grown enough to teach, and they have not. In fact, it gets worse. It's not just that they haven't grown adequately. He can't even say the things he wants to say to them because they're not prepared to hear it. That's a step beyond, isn't it? It's not just that you haven't grown as you should. You haven't grown enough for me to continue teaching you. That's a problem. But let's go a step even further. It gets worse yet. It's not just that I can't even teach you. This author says you ought to be teaching the babes in the faith and you need to go back to spiritual kindergarten. That's what he says here. You need to go back and learn stoicheon, the elemental things of the faith, the primary things of the faith. Some people say this is like the ABCs of the faith. The ABCs of the faith. You are not only not prepared to teach, you're not really prepared to be taught, and in fact, you need to go back to kindergarten. That is a strong charge. Well, what are the elementary elements that are in view here? What is this author saying? We need to go back and recover. I think it's this letter, right? It's this letter. We talk about this letter like it's so difficult, so mystifying. Yet I think this author is saying these are the basic things you should know. What does he mean? Christ is greater than all the Old Testament pictures. You should know that. You shouldn't have to go through five years of learning that. Is Christ greater than angels? You should know the answer. Is Christ greater than Moses? You should know the answer. Joshua, you should know the answer. Aaron, you should know the answer. These are not things you should have to think through. You should be able to answer immediately. Yes. Yes. What else can we say about Christ? His covenant is greater. The hope we have in Him is greater. That we are to repent of our sin and turn to Him and be baptized by faith into Him. By the way, these are the things He's going to mention at the beginning of chapter 6, these elemental principles. These are the basic things that you have to know even to be a believer. That's what he says. Let's go past these elementary principles. Let's go on to perfection, on to completeness. Let's not lay again over and over this foundation of repentance from dead works. That should have been something you knew from the very beginning. You repented of your sin. You repented of works. You came in by faith in Christ. Do we have to go back over baptism and all these things that you should have known then? No. How much better would it be to talk about Melchizedek? How much better would it be to talk about all these other doctrines that we ought to move along to, and yet we can't? And yet we can't. And so again, my friends, there's something important to recognize. This letter, for some interpretive difficulties along the way we're trying to deal with, is not that difficult a letter. Jesus is greater. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only way. 
It's just a long exposition of defending and making all those points. And along the way saying, be careful, because you're about to walk away from these truths. You're about to, with your feet, say, I don't believe any of that. And this author is saying, be careful. Be very, very careful. And so that brings me to my final point this morning. It'll be very, very quick. A call to serious spiritual maturity. At the heart of all this is the expectation that Christians are growing in their faith. We know more than we did three months ago, six months ago, 18 months ago. We're growing, we're learning, we're developing. But again, not with an end that we just simply grow, but that we grow in order to give. And that's the importance of hearing and taking the Word of God seriously. Because a long-term lack of spiritual growth might simply signify negligence with, with the faith, which is a sin, by the way, in and of itself. It's a sin, and a serious sin. But this author warns it could signal much, much more. Much, much more, a terrifying answer, which we come to in chapter 6, and we'll be looking at it soon. And so we need to grow in the faith. That's what we call discipleship, isn't it? What is discipleship? We could come up with a, a quick definition, right? It's emulating and being taught by our master to be more and more like him. But the expectation in becoming a disciple is one day you do discipling, right? Paul said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. He meant, as I have advanced in my walk with the Lord, you can use me as a model. But one day, I hope Timothy or Titus or whomever, that you've gone far enough that others can follow you. That you can set the example. You can set the walk of what does it mean to walk with the Lord? What does it mean to walk by faith? And so we need to be disciples, growing in our faith, looking more like our master with the aim of later being able to disciple others. And that's what, this is, that's what we're called to. Jesus had disciples. They discipled others. And generation after generation, they discipled. And so, my friends, we need to do that. Well, how do we do it as a church? As individuals, we need to heed the Word, be in the Word, be in prayer, be in all these things that we talk about. How do we do it as a church? We need to emphasize discipleship. We need to emphasize learning and growing and having opportunities for service, those sorts of things. It's one of the reasons, by the way, we added the catechism in a couple of years ago. You know, catechisms have been used in confession since the earliest days of the church. Why? Well, how many times do your kids or grandkids ask a question and you don't have an easy answer? Right? Maybe somebody says, well, what even is sin? And you can hem and haw and try to think and spend 15 minutes and be like, I'm just not satisfied with what I said. Or you can simply say, sin is any want of conformity to or transgression against the law of God. Now, that's what our our catechism is handed down to us. And that's accurate, biblically accurate. It is not only transgressing the law of God, it's not conforming to the law of God, right? To, I mean, hamartia, the, the Greek word for sin, simply means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means you aim for the bullseye and you missed. It is a sin to not live up to the call of God, not to live up to the word of God, to fall short of what God has commanded us to. It is a sin. What we often call a sin of omission as opposed to a sin of commission, right? But they're both sins. And so we need things like that. Maybe you deal with somebody and they say, what's the point of life anyway? Well, how nice to go back to our first point of catechism, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How can you say it better than that? Our, our calling, the reason we're here, is to bring glory to God. 
And then He allows us to enjoy Him now and eternally. That's not only our calling, but our great hope. So again, these things are important. Having an answer, and maybe you don't have it memorized, but you know where it is. And you can go get it out and say, hold on, I've got a little book here I want to show you. And, and even give to you to study. It's important. And then we need to listen. Heed the words we're taught. Think about them. Be in the word. Be prepared to offer defense. Be a people who love the word of God, who grow in the word of God, who heed the word of God, hear the word of God, and ultimately desire to teach the word of God. Now maybe that's in a Sunday school class. Or maybe that's in your home. Or maybe that's in your workplace. But my friends, all of us are to have answers. All of us are to have replies and apologies. Now that word apology, defense, right? Uh, an, an apologia. It's to have a defense. To have an answer. We're called to have an answer. But we can't do that if we're not growing. How can we answer what we don't know? How can we answer? How can we teach what we don't know? And so again, my friends, even as we come to difficult things in the text, the answer is not, oh, that's, that's too hard. I think that's what it's talking about here. Growing lazy in your handling of the Word, saying, oh, that's for preachers. That's for professors. That's for maybe even deacons, but it's not for just regular people in the church. Maybe elder territory, maybe deacon territory, not church member territory. My friends, was this, I missed this, was this Bible somewhere inscribed only to elders and deacons? Or was it inscribed to the people of God? Is it given to, to us as a blessing? My friends, we need to heed it, we need to read it, we need to think about it, we need to embrace it, love it, trust in it, believe it, and be willing to teach it. Maybe imperfectly, I get that, right? We're not all, I mean, even preachers, right? We, we're trying to learn, we're trying to teach. We realize our limitations. We're learning too. God has called us all to be students of the Word, but not to our own good only, but to bless the people of God. And so, my friends, I pray that we would think about this differently. If we've been in church 20 years and we wouldn't feel like we could teach others, we need to be in prayer about that. I really believe we do. We need to be in prayer about it and saying, Lord, uh, help me to be able to, to help someone, teach someone. Help me to listen better. Give me wisdom in these things. And by the way, that's a, a biblical thing too, right? Pray for wisdom to the one who's faithful to give it. And so my friends, consider this text in the days ahead. Think about it because this is the launching point. This is the, the uh, swimming pool diving board, if you will, which we're jumping in to what's laying ahead here in chapter 6. You need to listen, he's saying. You need to grow, you need to learn so that you can be teachers. That's what God desires.